Well, good afternoon. It's lovely to see you again. One of the things that we love about Americans is their can-do mentality. It's part of the American century, the 20th century. Indeed, one of their great songs was, Anything you can do, I can do better. Comes from Annie, uh, Get Your Gun, doesn't it? They sang that duet. But you move on to another decade or two later, and it's reflected in the hymn of Helen Reddy, I Am Woman. Or you can see it in the little children's song from Puffing Billy. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And it's all about, I can do anything. There's that wonderful optimistic confidence that if I wanted to do something, if I really put my concentrated efforts into doing it, there's nothing that I can't achieve. I can do anything. One of the things I love about Chicago, which is one of my very favourite cities, is that they got their river and turned it to go the opposite direction. They didn't like the way it was going, so they turned the whole river around so that it now flows the opposite direction. There is can-do mentality. There is nothing going to stand in our way of doing what we want done. But Jesus said that serving two masters is something you can't do. It's not just inadvisable to do it. It's not just impracticable to to do it. It's not even just difficult to do it. Jesus says in verse 24 of Matthew 6, you cannot do it. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the word for serve there is that of slave. He's not saying nobody can have two bosses, but nobody can have two masters whom they serve as slaves served. And of course the two masters he has in mind here that his meaning are God and money. You cannot serve God and money. It's not just difficult or problematic to serve God and money. It's impossible. It cannot be done. I've said it over, and Jesus says it very starkly, because frankly we don't believe it. This is one of those things that is said. We nod our heads and we go away still not believing it. You cannot serve God and money. There's a profound incompatibility between the two that will make your position unviable. It makes it impossible. But what does serving money mean? It's such a strange notion to serve money. A boss, a child, a spouse, an emperor... I know how to serve, but how do I serve money? It's so hard to explain what serving money means. It's to enslave yourself to money. Uh, This slavery Paul calls the love of money, but how do you love money? When I was a little boy 
Donald Duck and uh, his whole tribe were the cartoons that my father used to bring home for me whenever I was sick, which encouraged me to be sick more often. And uh, one of the course was Scrooge McDuck, the very wealthy man who had huge vats of money that he used to jump into and kiss and swim in vats of money. And there is loving money, but of course that's an absurd imagery of loving money. How, How do you and I love money? Well, it's the commitment of our life and work, of our hopes and aspirations, of our concerns and anxieties to money. And what is money? Why, it's the possessions. It's the power. I mean, at the moment, we have it in notes and little coins. But more and more, it's just in numbers attached to our name somewhere in the clouds of cyberspace that that is what money is. It's just the the fact that I own enough power to get things done, that I have enough possessions or not enough possessions. It's about my possessions and my power, but it's about my possessions and my power. There's many symptoms to it. When I'm too busy maintaining my possessions, when I'm too busy growing my business, when I'm enviously comparing myself with others and their power and their possessions, or when I'm relaxing by going shopping, or when I'm evaluating friends by their wealth, or when I cease to be courteous to people who serve me at restaurants or in the public transport, or these are just but symptoms of my commitment to money, my commitment to power, my commitment to my possessions. But while serving money may be hard to explain, at the same time, it's so hard to resist. For our whole society is committed to this slavery. The materialistic philosophy by which secularists have dismissed God has not become as atheistic as they had hoped for. What the materialists have done is not dismiss God, they've changed God's. They've changed God the creator for God's the creation. Instead of serving their creator, they're now serving their creation. You notice it in books when they use the word nature with a capital N or they talk about mother nature. Mother nature does this or nature does that. Nature is a small N. Nature is not a person. Nature doesn't make any decisions. Nature just is what is. It's God who is being replaced by capital N, nature. I watched a TV show recently on on botany. I'm not really into botany. It reminds me of gardening, and gardening reminds me of work that I don't like doing. So I generally don't watch shows on botany, but I'm a married man. So I watched this show on botany, which was really fascinating. It was a great series. The, the, the wonders of modern television and the, the cameras that can take you in time lapses over a period of time to watch plants actually growing right in front of your eyes, of, of being so close. It was a marvellous series, but it drove me mad because of the commentary that went with it. For the commentary that went with it kept on talking about the plants in a personified fashion, that they decided they would do this, and then they decided they'd do that, and they decided how evolution would work, and they decided that they would build mountains out of their compost, and they de- the plants decide nothing. 
They have no brains. I wish the BBC commentator understood that, but evidently he was a little bit too much like a plant himself because he was saying patent nonsense. They're worshipping the creation instead of worshipping the creator. And so we now live in this materialistic society. For philosophical materialism creates economic materialism. The ovals that, and parks in which games are played these days, I never know where to go because they keep on changing the name of ovals by whoever has got the naming rights or by some company. They, I'm supposed to go to Telstra Oval. I don't know where Telstra Oval is. If you tell me where to go to the football stadium, you tell me where the cricket ground is, you tell me where the Olympic ground is, I know them. But where is the video phone oval? Or where is the, they keep changing the names as if these people own our land. Or the teams that entertain us all have the names of their sponsors on them. Even our national teams are named after their sponsors. In every area of life, money is the prime concern. Materialism is the air we breathe and it comes with our our mother's milk. No longer do I support a team that somehow represents me. Why? We buy in players from elsewhere to play in our national colours under the name of some sponsor. Why? We'll even import a coach from the very team we're playing against in order to coach our players to beat them. You'll notice that hasn't worked. Australia Post sent me an Australian lifestyle survey recently. Why does the government post office need to do this is a great mystery to me. For the survey was not about lifestyle but about consumer behaviour, which the materialists confuse are the same things. Your lifestyle is your consumer behaviour. Australia Post is helping companies to tailor their advertising to particular customers. It's not a survey about community lifestyle. It's not for the benefit of the community or even ultimately for the postal system. Furthermore, it had to appeal to my own greed and love of money in order to get me to fill it in. For if I filled in the form, I had a chance of winning $25,000 or even up to $31,000, which was a very strange figure to win. My covetous materialism was the motivation for me to fill it in. Gambling is one of the purest forms of this materialism. And in Piemont, where I live, is a cathedral that makes this cathedral look small and tiny. It's a cathedral that employs thousands of people every day and is open 24 hours a day. Its largest attendance happens on Christmas Day, where twice as many people turn up as any other day of the year. People are there at 8 o'clock in the morning, 9 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning. They are there all day. It's the great and miserable cathedral called the Star, where lives are enslaved. Gambling dominates our society. Uh, The state of Victoria, the state of New South Wales, cannot make any decisions against gambling because more than 15% of the income comes from gambling. If you own 15% of a company, you own the company. You've got rights on the board. That's what the gamblers do in our state governments. They are unable to control gambling. It's too deeply owned by the gambling industry. See the incredible attempts to rein in the poker machines through the federal government. 
total waste of space and time to try it through our local Macquarie Street state government. That, that has got absolutely snowball's chance in hell or some phrase like that is what needs to be said there. The federal government doesn't go direct funding from uh, poker machines. There may be some hope of change there, but we've seen what little chance there is of change there. The power of the clubs, the power of the gambling industry is just far too great. And it is wicked and it is evil, friends. The highest per capita poker machines in New South Wales occur in the poorest areas of Sydney. The, 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 uh, the casino sends buses out on pension day to the poorest areas of Sydney to give people free rides into the city. The wickedness, the evil of it, is breathtakingly... It, it, you don't know how, how people could be so blatant in what they are doing. Personally, I have a problem that I'd like to share with you. You might like to work out what I'm supposed to do because as I walk around there, there's loads of tourists and there's always people looking for the casino and they stop me in the street because I look like a local and they say, which way do you go to the casino? And I'm never quite sure how I'm supposed to answer that question. Do I tell the truth and tell them where the casino is? Do I give them a little lecture on how much they're going to lose because it's just a fleecing organisation? Or do I do the other and tell them a lie and send them off somewhere else and point to a better cathedral they might like to visit? Uh, I'm never quite sure what is the right answer in this case, so you might like to help me someday and tell me what I should be saying. You see, materialism, though, is everywhere. It's just part of our world, so much like air that we can't, we can't see it unless we stop and think for a moment or two about it. It's like that old ABBA song of 20 years ago, money, money, money. It's like the real estate prices of Sydney, which are just so much a part of barbecue conversation. It's like the evening news. I don't know whether you noticed that about 10 years ago, the evening news gave us every night an analysis of the stock markets. It's as if point one went up, point two went down, it makes any difference. If you watch them night after night, they're never actually saying anything, really. But we've got to get every night. That is a part of the news of our community. Voluntary work, which was the making of this country, is now under attack. People won't do things unless they're paid for it. An early retiree told me when I encouraged him that, you know, what he should do in his retirement is take up some voluntary work because there's loads of it that needs to be done. He said... If I'm not paid for it, then the people don't value it. And if they don't value it, why should I? To understand Jesus' attack on serving money then, look at the previous two questions where he effectively posed in the Sermon on the Mount, namely, verses 19 to 21, where is your treasure? And 22 to 23, how's your eyesight? Firstly, where's your treasure? And you'll notice on the outline I placed yours in italics. I've just got to check myself that that's actually what we do have in the outline, that it's in italics, but I'm not sure that it is, no. No, it's not, but underline yours in your outline there. Where is your treasure? For that's the emphasis. See, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For the end point of the command in verse 21 is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever it is that you treasure is the location of your heart's desires. And that is the location of your heart. That is the location of your true self. In a fire, what in the house 
will you try to rescue? What items will you not leave the house unless you have them clutched with you? What would you risk your life by staying a few more seconds to grab hold of? For that's what really matters to you. Hopefully, it's the other people in the house that you are thinking of at that moment. But it's amazing what we can suddenly leave behind when confronted with the life and death issue of a fire or a flood. When death comes, it places life in true perspective. It's amazing what people will reevaluate when they're told they have cancer and only a little while to live. But not always. I know a man whose wife refused to visit him when he was taken to hospital with life-threatening heart attack. They rang her from the hospital and she said she was too busy at work to take time off. He was either going to live and so there was no need to visit or die and so there was no need to visit and she just kept working for her corporate boss. I know the man who on his deathbed with his family around him told him to keep quiet so that he can continue to trade on the market through his uh, agent who was on the phone. Right up to his deathbed, on his deathbed there, the family were an intrusion and he was still trading. What do we now live for? Where is your heart? Or to put it another way, how's your eyesight? Where's your vision? For the eye is a way of talking of your vision for life. What is your personal vision statement, if you like to put it in that kind of business speak? What's your personal mission statement, which can sum up you and your life? The healthy eye is contrasted here with the bad or evil eye. Within the Old Testament and amongst the Jews, the healthy eye and the evil eye often had to do with money. So in the book of Proverbs, we read, whoever has a good eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. And again, in Proverbs 28, a man whose eye is evil hastens after wealth and doesn't know that poverty will come upon him. So when Jesus speaks of the healthy or the good eye, he's speaking of the vision of a man that is good and he will not be looking with greed or with covetousness. Like the vision of the man with the evil or bad eye who hastens all the time after wealth. So how's your eyesight, my friends? What have you set your eyes upon? What are your eyes set upon? Tells us a lot about what is within you. But we can give a right answer to that question. So let me help you discover the real you even better by saying, what is your vision for your children? You see, my vision's for me, I don't want to be selfish. But my vision for my children, and it's not selfish to want the best for them, is it? But what is the best for them that I would long for, hope for, seek and desire? Because that tells you what I really think is the best. That is, here is a choice before us. A choice of treasures. A choice of I. A choice of masters. It's not really three choices, but one of the same choice that Jesus is presenting. The choice of treasures is the choice between the world's treasures and heaven's treasures. And it's an obvious and simple choice because the world's treasures don't last. And one of the keys of a half-decent treasure 
is that it will last. Fancy treasuring something that's going to evaporate. But this world's treasures are all sus- but the world's treasures are always suspect to loss. Be it moth or rust that eats away our cloth and metal or thieves that enter in and steal or inflation that just takes away our our investments and savings or the downturn in markets. No wealth in this world is permanent or permanently ours, which is why the spin doctors call some forms of wealth securities, because they're not. That's the very point of calling them that, that you may think they are. It all requires constant maintenance and cleaning and protection. Wealth doesn't remove worries. It adds worries. Whereas heaven's treasures are permanent and safe. There is no moth, rust or thief in heaven. What we have is of permanent value. You'll never be disappointed with what you treasure when you treasure heaven and you treasure the things of God and his kingdom. Righteousness and truth and love and justice will never disappoint you. Similarly with the choice of eye. Jesus is talking about our symbolic, not our physical eye. Our eye being healthy as opposed to being bad. Nobody wants anything for their eye other than perfect. If we could get rid of these glasses, we'd love to, wouldn't we? We want clear vision. But in this sense of the eye, it's the vision that enlightens your whole life for your vision is an expression of what is within your very self. And the contrast is between light and darkness. For within the Bible, light stands for God and salvation and life and darkness for the judgment of God and death. If your eye is fixed on the things of this world, because your heart and treasure the things of this world, then your life and your heart are filled with death and darkness. There's no life of God within you. Just one great impenetrable darkness, like some spiritual black hole, which prepares us for the third expression of this choice, the choice of masters. For you will serve a master, everybody does. Nobody serves nobody. Everybody serves somebody or something. It was the lie of the serpent in the Garden of Eden that you could throw off your service of God and be independent. When we ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we didn't become independent. We came under the serpent's leadership. We came to serve the God of this world. Still, people think they can run themselves without coming into slavery to something. They pity those enslaved to drink or to drugs but they fail to see themselves equally enslaved to money, to power, to possessions. That's one of the problems with addicts. They're always in denial. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples, men who think they want to serve God. And so he warns them, you cannot serve two masters. You'll find division within yourself. Not so much between your masters, but within yourself. You'll love one and hate the other. And your service of the one you hate, it will gall you that you have to serve him. He will either be done with gritted teeth or you'll find excuse and reason why you don't fulfil your obligations. But you will not be able to serve both. 
the disciples want to serve God. I hope and assume that you also want to serve God. But to serve God requires the renunciation of the alternatives, especially the alternative of serving money. For we can't serve God and money. If we want a comfortable life in this world, we can forget being a Christian. For Jesus came into the world to save sinners by crucifixion and we are to follow him. If we want to live in wealth and prosperity, if we want power and possessions, we can forget being a Christian. For we cannot serve God and serve ourselves like that. It's like, my friend, standing with one foot on the wharf and one foot on a boat. It's an incredibly uncomfortable position, especially as the tide goes out. The man who's got both feet on the wharf is a happy man. The man who's got both feet on the, on the boat is a happy man. But the man with a foot on both is a misery man. The pagan can be happy in his paganism. The Christian can be happy in his Christianity. But the double-minded man is never happy in anything. You cannot do it. One foot in the kingdom of heaven will be pulled away from the foot that is in the kingdom of this world. If you're going to be serving God, serve him. If you're not going to serve God, then give up and serve some other God. Joshua, at the end of his lifetime, farewelled his people with a challenge. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Or as Elijah on Mount Carmel challenged them in 1 Kings 18, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two opinions, two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The real problem really is our stupidity. For we know that it is impossible to serve masters. Furthermore, we know that the pursuit of money and happiness and pleasure is unsatisfying and futile and that more money and more wealth doesn't ultimately ever satisfy. And yet, and yet we ignore what we know. That's why I call it stupidity. To ignore what you know is pretty stupid, isn't it? We ignore the obvious inadequacy of materialism. We ignore its failure to provide security or satisfaction. We ignore our knowledge that the love of money is the root of all evil. As with the rest of society, we tumble into this slavery of money consumed by what we consume, spending our excessive hours in work and calling shopping our hobby, even our psychological therapy. And so we deny the truth that we cannot serve God and money as we give it our best shot to serve both. Trying to be a Christian who lives in this world like the rest of materialistic society is a fundamentally lost cause, my brothers and sisters. Do not go that route. 
Christians slowly squeeze God out of an over-busy life, unable to serve him and please him because we have to work so hard to rise up the corporate ladder in order to have our power and possessions. It's a struggle we all feel because we live in such a materialistic society at such a materialistic age. For many of us, it's our adult children who we've seen give up the fight to only serve the one master, money. What a tragedy. Jesus' words are very harsh here, aren't they? In fact, I'm sorry, this Bible study's been a bit harsh, hasn't it? But sometimes the hearth truth, being the truth, is the loving truth. Better to know where we stand right at the beginning. You cannot serve God and money.